Oh, my goodness. It's so awesome to hear the praises to our God and celebrate this time of the year together. Um, one of the things, if you're new here, that we're doing here at Heights is we're going through the Bible in five years period of time. So what we do is we read a little bit of the scripture as a congregation together, and then our sermons are based upon our readings each week. And so we have been, this is the last sermon from our readings for this year, and so we're finishing the Gospel of Matthew. And it's ironic that we are celebrating Jesus' birth, but this past week we read about his his death and his resurrection. So we really get the, the whole breadth of the reason why Jesus came and died for us. I want to let you guys know, next year will mark year number five that we're going through the Bible. At the end of next year, we will have finished reading the entire Bible together as a congregation. How's that for cool? That's pretty cool, right? And so these are printed up. They're not out and available yet, but I wanted to kind of tease you guys with it. Um, but we will be stepping into Minor Prophets at the beginning of next year. And we're going to be reading all through that through the first quarter of our year as we head into the Easter time. And that's going to be so awesome. And so next couple of weeks, look for it out on the information desk. A suggested donation of $7 for them. Um, but we would love for you to pick up. It's just broken up the readings. We'll have bookmarks as well for those of you who say, I just want... I just want to read my Bible. That's cool. We'll have the bookmarks that have those same readings for you. But we just invite you on the journey with us to be able to do that together. Uh, we're going to learn a lot. It's going to be fantastic. All right. So it's Christmas time. Does it feel Christmas time yet? I've, I've been waiting for snow. Anybody else waiting for snow? Raise your hand if you're waiting. Thank you. You are my people, right? So that's awesome. I'm waiting for snow, but we finally got the cold enough weather for snow. That's, that's something I'm very excited about. Um, my daughter loves to do puzzles. How many of you are puzzle people? Raise your hand. And when I say my daughter loves to do puzzles, she loves to do puzzles. Me and my wife outgrew that. Um, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, that's just us. We, we, early on in our marriage, we, we, were, we did the 300 piece. We moved up to a 500 piece. I think the most we ever did was a 550. And I remember us sitting down early on in our marriage and, and doing that. And, and I just like, no, I'm done. I am the type of person, I mean, I, I like the beautiful pictures that are on the puzzles. But if I want the picture, I'll buy the picture. I don't want to put it together. That's just me, okay? My daughter, however, loves putting these puzzles together. She absolutely has a blast with it. So we bought her, what, a, a few years ago, we bought her a 2,000-piece puzzle set. How many of you have done a 2,000-piece puzzle set? Raise your hand. How many of you have done more than that? Ooh. What, what's the most you've done? 3,500. Wow. If I lose something, I'm coming to you to help me find it. That's, that's what that comes down to. My daughter loves putting together the puzzles. For her, it's, it's just finding that little piece that finds it in the right place, and there's something satisfying about it, right? Those of you who are puzzle people, you know what I'm talking about. Back in the 1990s, there was a different type of puzzle. They had these 3D pictures that were out, some of you might remember, I bought a poster because I thought they were so cool. And there were these 3D pictures, and you couldn't see it to begin with. You would look at it. And as you looked at it, you were, you were instructed by the people who were there, said, oh, don't look at the picture, you'll never find it. You need to look beyond the picture in order to see the 3D image. 
And so you're supposed to like to have a little piece of glass in front of it. You look at the reflection, like look at your nose and tell you, and your mind will kind of grab hold of this 3D image. How many of you remember this? How many of you bought one of those? I might be one of the only ones who did. So, um, but I bought one and it was of a basketball player who was, you know, dunking. And I, I thought it was so cool. But the problem with me was this. Some people, once their eyes adjusted to it, it's like they could not see it. It was like they could see it. They could walk around here and they could see it. It was so cool. For me, it was so hard to see. I would catch a glimpse of it. I would see it. And I would be like, oh, that's awesome. I'd blink and it'd be gone. And I'd have to start the whole process over again. I thought for sure, you know, if I buy a poster of it, put it in my room, I will get so good at seeing it, it will be very easy. Never happened. Never happened. I never bought another one of those posters. I wanted to see the 3D image, and all I could catch was a glimpse of it. I never saw it perfectly the way that it was designed to be seen. And yet at the same time, as we have walked through chapters 26, 27, and 28 of Matthew this week. I think that's kind of the disciples in this moment where Jesus is arrested, he's beaten, he's crucified. They, they didn't really see it coming. And how many of you, having read the Gospels, are like, are you stupid? He like says it a dozen times straight up, right? Seriously, have any of you ever wondered, how could they not get this? Jesus plainly says a dozen times in the scripture, the chief priests, the elders, the people who are there, they're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. That's what's going to happen when I go to Jerusalem. And in some instances, he says, in three days later, I'm going to rise. I mean, it's all right there. It's how can you miss this? Because I really believe that when we read in Matthew 26 and his arrest, not only did they miss it, they missed it bad. How could they miss it so badly? Why didn't the disciples know? Well, I believe that there's a logical explanation. I want to plumb this line a little bit because I think they're kind of like me with that 3D puzzle, right? They got glimpses of it, but it never really fully came together. So if you will, let's go back a little bit earlier in Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at. And Jesus has just given the parable of the sower and the seed. In verse 10, the disciples are a little confused on how he's approaching the crowds. And they ask him this question. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears 
and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. If we go a little further down in chapter 13, Jesus or it's explained that Jesus says this in verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And so Jesus's ministry to the masses was veiled in parables. A lot of times we see the disciples, and they understand many of the parables, but we do see Jesus interrupt as they ask some questions, saying, hey, what did this parable mean? We, we got these other parables. What did this parable mean? He explains the, the sower and the seeds to them. He'll explain the parable of, of the weeds that we talked about earlier in our study in Matthew. But he doesn't do it for every parable. Some of them, the, the disciples they got, or at least they thought they got, right? I understand what's going on here. Or some of them, they were maybe afraid to ask. I mean, how many times would you like to keep going back to the teacher over and over and over again when you figure they should know by now, right? Oh, we've been walking with Jesus three and a half years. He keeps giving these parables. Why don't I understand this one? Maybe just let it go. And it doesn't help, at least from the disciples' point of view, that Jesus oftentimes spoke of his death and resurrection much like a parable. If we go back one chapter in Matthew 12, in verse 38, as the Pharisees are confronting Jesus, it starts this way. It says, And some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see from you a miraculous sign. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. It sounds a lot like a parable, doesn't it? Something that they might need to kind of figure and work out. As a matter of fact, we go to John chapter 2 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first time that he cleanses the temple at the proclamation of the ministry. He's thrown out the money changers, and everybody's a little thrown off. And in verse 18 of chapter 2 of John, it says this, And then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Kind of the same question we heard earlier, wasn't it? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. 
And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, there's a little detail right there in John that lets them know we, they didn't get it. They didn't get it at the time that he said it. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. I have a feeling that in the back of their mind, because he's speaking in parables to the crowd, and again, he's speaking to the crowd, this was something they were just supposed to work out. Supposed to be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights like Jonah was? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up again? Oh, it's taken us 46 years, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And the disciples, in the back of their mind, every single time Jesus says, he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and they're going to do their way with him. And at the third day, he's going to rise again. And all this time, I'm almost convinced through the scriptures that I see there that they're just trying to work it out in their head because at every step of the way, we see that there's kind of a resistance to it, right? Matthew 16, when he reveals himself, who do people say that I am? You are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Peter, blessed are you, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he has revealed this to you. And immediately he goes on, and I'm going to be crucified, and three days later I rise. And what does Peter say? No, never let it be so, Lord. And he starts to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He just called him blessed, and now he calls him Satan. He doesn't get it. It's like they see that glimpse, right? They see just a little bit of that picture, but they blink and it fades away. Much like my 3D poster. And this is the ministry that continues on. As a matter of fact, when we look at the trial of Jesus, if I can get my phone to work again, this is why... Paper Bibles sometimes are better. Um, But if we look at the trial of Jesus in Matthew 26, and they're looking for charges against him, it's very interesting as we look in, in verse 59, it says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward. And declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. After his conviction, when he's put up on the cross, the crowds mock him. Verse 37. And above his head they place The written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And so we see that the crowds in the same way didn't get it, did they? They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, I was going to destroy the temple. They didn't get it when he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
plain language, he's trying to tell them exactly what's going to happen. They didn't get it. Disciples really didn't get it either. As a matter of fact, I think you see a change in the heart of the disciples at the arrest of Jesus. Peter's brought swords. They think that he's going to be revealed as this conquering king, the promised Messiah who's going to deliver Israel from all this oppression. We believe you are who you say you are. We're following you. We've got some swords, just like you said. You know, if anyone has a sword, make sure he takes one now. We got two. We're ready to rock and roll. Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. Peter jumping into action, impetuous as always, wanting to defend his Lord and Savior, his King, whom he loved. I think sometimes we take Peter and his zeal wrongly. It's just aimed in the wrong direction. Cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus reattaches it according to Luke's account. It says, I have not come as a rebellion. Don't you think that my father could employ 12 legions of angels? And the disciples leave. Remember, this was Peter who said, though everybody else fall away from you, I will not. Because I don't believe for a moment that he thought that Jesus was really going to be captured and that Jesus was really going to die. And as soon as he's arrested, as soon as the action of force is rebuked by Jesus, everything they thought they knew about this Messiah that they were following kind of was put into question. We thought it was all figurative. We thought it was all just just to employ your kingdom, that they were going to suppress your teaching, that they were going to do something during this time, but we hadn't quite figured it out. But now you're arrested, and we know how this usually ends. And so they dispersed, every one of them. So much so that Peter With all the bravado from earlier, though everybody deny you, I won't. Jesus said, you know, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Or before it crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And it wasn't a big, bad Roman soldier who was accusing him. It was a servant girl who had no standing legally. I know you. That voice. You're with him. That, That accent. No, no, I don't know the man. He's supposed to conquer. And now he's arrested. And I don't know how this is going to end. It's funny because in, in Luke's gospel, after Jesus has risen from the dead, You have two disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus. And as Jesus joins them and as he's walking with them, they give this description. They said, there's this man, Jesus. He was a prophet, mighty in power. We thought he was the Messiah. 
because all of their expectations have been shattered. Everything that they thought about Jesus, they, they got glimpses, but they kind of got some of the stuff wrong. And they weren't prepared for what happened. Which is what makes Matthew 28 such a joy, as well as a challenge. If you will, turn with me as we read this last chapter of Matthew's gospel together. After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them, greetings, he said, and they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the, took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This truly was, for the disciples, an unexpected triumph. They they didn't see it coming. Not from a million miles away. This wasn't the type of victory or even the type of Messiah they thought they were following so much greater. Not just to defeat the dreaded Romans and to come as a conquering king over all those powers of oppression, but rather to hit for you and me the absolute enemy of our souls, which is sin, which leads to death. Defeated on the cross. I didn't see it coming. So much better. So much more worthy of being a Messiah. 
And I love that the angel right there, as these women who are coming, that we read in another gospel, they're coming to, to bring the burial procedure, to bring the spices, to, to embalm the body, maybe unaware that Joseph and Nicodemus had already done so. And they show up, and the angel rolls away the stone. And the guards that had been guarding it because they didn't want Jesus raised from the dead are, are afraid and faint like dead men. I think I probably would too. And sitting there invites them in. Come and see. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said. To make sense of all of those puzzles that they thought they had to put together. Here it was on the third day. How cool is that? And they worshipped. But we see two different reactions that happen with the resurrection of Jesus in this chapter. We see the reaction of the 11 disciples and those who are there at the mountain at at his final command before he ascends up into heaven. And we see the, the reaction of the ladies who are the first to discover that Jesus has risen from the dead and meet up with Jesus. And then we see the scribes and the Pharisees and those who want to keep this resurrection under wraps. And so they devise a plan, and they say the disciples have come and stolen the body. As a matter of fact, it's something that, as Matthew has written this down, this is an uh, an account that is spread even to this day. Ironically, it's still spread today for those who don't believe. Because in the end, there's only two sides to this story, those who believe and those who don't. Those who don't believe will deny the historicity of everything that we're celebrating. Oh, it's a good story, they might say. It's inspiring. It's something that we we try to live up to. And so we're inspired by the birth of the baby Jesus. So we come to church during this time of year to be further inspired by music and and song and and emotive uh dictates from the pulpit that would inform us and help us to try and be better people and see a world of peace and love that this, that this little babe was supposed to usher into the world. But it's just a story. Nothing real about it, that God would come and wrapped in flesh. And we spend our time, for those who are on that side of the story, making every excuse as to why anything like this is real. Jesus didn't really die, he swooned. It was a mass hallucination. Really, you know, they were mistaken, they had the wrong body. These are the excuses that you hear. Jesus wasn't even a man of history, but something made up out of legend. The real Jesus was something totally different. They sound a whole lot like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes that were eager to pay off the men at the tomb. We'll keep you out of trouble. Let's just spread this so that other people don't believe. Or you have the disciples. 
Because now all the riddles are gone. They can see clearly the fulfillment. They, they look back, as John has said in John chapter 2, and they look back at all of these prophecies that Jesus plainly said that they didn't take it at that plain thing. We thought it was a parable. We thought it was something else. And now we're seeing with the eyes that Jesus has always said this, and we just kind of missed it because maybe of our own biases, maybe we just mistook what the Messiah was supposed to be. But despite our ignorance... He's risen again and showed himself to us. And he's proclaimed that our job is to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Something we got to see last week. Wasn't that awesome? And let me tell you something. If you do not believe that Jesus is a Jesus of history, that that babe in swaddling clothes is not God in the flesh, if Jesus didn't die on that cross for your sins and mine, and he truly didn't rise again, you will never make a disciple of Jesus Christ from anybody else. It'll only be a good story to you. And it'll have no power in your life to do anything but inspire you to do a couple good things, right? Jesus didn't call us to inspire others. He called us to make disciples of all nations. To go, to baptize, to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded us. If we do not believe that Jesus is a Jesus of history, that this birth is not the miraculous birth of God in the flesh as he foretold, and that his death was on the cross for your sins and mine, that his resurrection proclaims his victory over both, we'll never live boldly for Jesus. Never. Because we'll always be worried that this world is the end. Whatever we're going through, we've got to preserve our life at all costs. And as we studied last year, when we went through Acts, when we look at the rest of the story of what happened to the disciples after the resurrection of Christ, these disciples who were so cowardly that at the very word of Jesus, they had run because they weren't really expecting to see Jesus die after he rose from the dead. You couldn't make them shut up. They're arrested. They're beat. They're killed. Either what they saw was real. I don't know any other explanation. Or it wasn't. But to a T, all 11 of those disciples would go to their graves. Most of them martyred, all of them persecuted, never denying the same Jesus that they did deny the night he was arrested. They took seriously what Jesus said. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. They've conquered sin and death. John 16, he says, you know what, for a while... He, he tries to prepare the disciples. And he says, you know, in, in, in just a little while... The world's going to rejoice while you mourn. But take heart because your mourning will turn to joy and no one will take away that joy. That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. 
when we come to the season and we treat it as only a good story, it has no power of transformation of our lives or to those around us. But when we realize that this is a true story of God invading this world because he loved us so much to transform us, to let us know that this place is not the end, that he has conquered sin and death, and all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How can we not tell the world about this good news? The reason Jesus was sent to this earth is the reason why he came and died. I love the fact that we get to celebrate both today. But do you believe it? Do you believe it enough that it's something that you're going to obey and tell others about? Because he's so transformed your life. Or are we just sitting back, treating it as only a good story? An inspiring story that may or may not be true. So it's a message of both the cradle, the cross, and the resurrection. The transformation has to be real. Has to be real because of what Jesus has done. If he was all of those things, how can we not tell the world around us? How can we not spend our lives making it the best goal of every single one of us to make disciples, even if it took a lifetime to do so? Do you stand with me? Just for a moment, every eye closed, every head bowed. This is a question for you as believers in Christ. Between you and God. How many of us after our initial love and transformation of Christ have kind of cooled off and started treating Christmas, Easter. Our life with Jesus is just kind of a cool story. Not as a Lord and Savior that's able to transform not our lives, but every life that he comes in contact with who would accept him as Lord and Savior. How many of you want prayer for acting a little bit different as the season comes to an end? Just raise your hand and I'll pray for you. God, I lift up those... I. I even lift up my own hand, O oh Lord. In our walk with you, we can become rote and forget, dear Heavenly Father, that you invaded our world so that we might invade other people's lives with the life-giving message of Christ. And we become quiet, silent, not making the disciples you're calling us to do, Lord. I, I just pray a repentance in, in my own heart, Lord. Repentance in the heart of those who are raising their hands, Lord, or even now just thinking about that. That we would spend our lives making disciples and sharing Christ, Lord, to the world who needs to help us not to forget.
God, for the rest of us, I just pray, Lord, I, I have no idea who's here and who's on the fence, Lord, who's only treated this as a story and not a, not a magnificent truth that should mean everything to us. If there's any here this day who have been on that story side of things and, and want to know this as truth, as fact, as something that just transforms every part of our being, oh Lord, that you'd break down those barriers even this day that they might come to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, become a follower of Jesus Christ, transforming their lives to your Heavenly Father so they can go out and transform transform others' lives and sharing the good news of Jesus. And for the rest of us here who are on that path, who are trying to make disciples, Lord, help us not grow weary in doing these good things and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us always to see it as transformative in our lives and to guide our actions, dear Heavenly Father, that we celebrate Christmas every day because of what you did for us through Christ on the cross. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this wonderful celebration today. Thank you that it's real. Help us to live as if it's real. In Jesus' name, amen.